So what I want to be doing today is I want to look at a certain style of argument which is supposed to show that ordinary, familiar, macroscopic objects, cats, dogs, tables, chairs and the like, that they are metaphysically fundamental, that they're amongst reality's kind of most basic constituents, ordinary sortal properties and objects. Or kind of the slightly more general version of that claim that I'm interested in is the thought that uh, aspects of our ordinary conceptual scheme, probably lots of aspects of our ordinary conceptual scheme, are latching on to reality's most fundamental aspects. That's the kind of view that I'm interested in. And what I'm going to be doing is looking at some options for taking uh, some tools that have been developed in thinking about the philosophy of mind and in defending mental phenomena against kind of causal exclusion arguments and applying them in a slightly novel setting and in a slightly novel way to try and get some slightly non-standard conclusions. I don't think I'm entirely settled on exactly what I think about all of the arguments in here, uh, but hopefully it's kind of settled enough that it be interesting. So I'll start out by saying a few things about um, the kinds of theses that I'm going to be interested in and this notion of metaphysical fundamentality, whatever that might be and the way I want to be thinking about that, and then spend a bit longer looking at the argument and some ways of cashing it out. Okay, so here's the introduction. This is section one on your handouts. So by the fundamental, I just want to mean kind of reality's most basic, non-derivative, non-dependent aspects, kind of its most, its most basic level of structure. Those aspects of reality in virtue of which everything else obtains. And by the derivative, I want to mean everything else. The derivative is the stuff that obtains in virtue of the fundamental, and the fundamental is the stuff in virtue of which everything else obtains. It's kind of a guiding idea, and we'll say some more about that in a bit. But with these notions to hand, we can characterize some of these two theses I've labeled on the handout, microphysicalism and macrophysicalism. So microphysicalism is the thesis that Ordinary objects, or ordinary sortals, for their derivative. That facts about them obtain virtue of facts about underlying microphysical stuff. More generally, everything that you care to mention obtains in virtue of facts about microphysical stuff, particles, bits and bobs, whatever, whatever that happens to be. And kind of, that's a, obviously the view that I don't like. The view that I do like is the view that I've labeled macrophysicalism, the view that Ordinary macroscopic objects and sortals are fundamental, but also I've built it in and so are their kind of underlying microphysical bits and bobs. So the kind of view that I'm shooting for is one on which we can find fundamental aspects of reality throughout the world's mariological and physical structure. The fundamental isn't confined just to the poles, say, or just to one level in there, kind of a liberal view. But especially I'm interested in the thought that we find fundamental aspects of reality in the familiar everyday world. That's the kind, that's what's driving me. So, like I say, going to be trying to look at the prospects for an argument for this view, which is based on taking some tools from philosophy of mind. In particular, what I want to do is look at the results of imposing a proportionality constraint on the connection between the fundamental and the derivative. I'll say more about what that amounts to in a minute. So, just before getting started, here are what I think of as three nice features 
of the macrophysicalist view. So the first feature has got to do with the grounding problem. So you take your statue, you take the piece of alloy out of which it's made. Both of them come into existence at the same time. They go out of existence at the same time. Whenever they exist, they're in the same place at the same time. They're made out of the same stuff, but yet they're not identical. They differ in their sortal properties, their modal profiles, their aesthetic properties, their economic value, all sorts of things. But how can there be these differences between the two of them, given that they coincide at all times? They're always made out of the same microphysical stuff. So that's going to look puzzling. It's going to look very difficult if you're a microphysicist. How are you going to explain that? But if you're a macrophysicalist, you should, there's no need to find that puzzling. If you think of ordinary objects and sortals as fundamental, then you shouldn't be looking to explain differences between coincident objects in terms of features of the underlying stuff that they're made out of. No problem there. From that kind of perspective, the grounding problem looks like a, a pseudo-problem created by a mistaken metaphysical presupposition, presupposition of microphysicalism. So the second kind of nice-making feature of the view is when it comes to the problem of the many. So I won't say exactly what that is, but my preferred solution to that puzzle, what it does, it allows ordinary individuals to be constituted by many different collections of particles at a single time. Many different, not entirely overlapping or coincident collections of particles at a time. So if we're thinking of ordinary objects as derivative and some kind of construction or generation, out of this underlying microphysical stuff, that's going to look a bit weird. Perhaps not inconsistent, but a bit strange. How come all of these kind of different basic explanatory units, collections of particles, end up corresponding to the same object? But on the macrophysicalist view, we're thinking of the objects as fundamental, no reason to find this puzzling. The relationship between a thing and the particles it's made out of, no different in principle to any other relation. No reason why it shouldn't be many one. Third kind of good feature of the view is when it comes to the special composition question. So this is the question in effect, how to fill in the blank in this little formula in the top right hand side of the first page. Or in other terms, if you've got a plurality of things, under what conditions is there something that they compose, a composite object made out of them. So it's turned out to be very difficult to find any kind of satisfying answers to that question. And if we're macrophysicalists, we've got a ready explanation for why that is. In effect, the special composition question is demanding an account of the existence conditions of all composite objects, specifiable in terms of the features of their non-object involving features of their underlying constituents. But if ordinary objects are fundamental, there's absolutely no reason to expect that there should be any such thing. So it's unsurprising that we failed to find a satisfying answer to it. I think those are nice features of the view. There are certainly not direct arguments for it. So I'm going to see if we can find any arguments for it. So I'll say a bit more in the next couple of sections of the handout about how I want to be thinking about fundamentality and derivativeness. And then we'll try looking at the argument. So broadly speaking, there are two kinds of approach towards fundamentality and fundamental and the derivative. So one kind, according to one kind of approach, the fundamental in a sense exhausts reality. All there is out there is the fundamental stuff. 
What there are, however, are many different ways of describing that fundamental stuff. There are many different levels of talk about it. And some ways of describing the underlying reality might more closely match its intrinsic structure than others. Closer match of intrinsic structure we can think of as yielding more fundamental level of description, a description that more closely matches the structure of the subject. And again, less close match is going to yield the derivative. So in this kind of view, we don't have more and less fundamental aspects of reality, but more and less fundamental levels of talk about reality. So I want to set that kind of view to one side. The approach that I want to be talking about is an approach that you find in people like, I guess, Gideon Rosen and Jonathan Schaefer and Kit Fine. So this is the view that says, look, reality contains both fundamental and non-fundamental aspects. There are all sorts of different things out there in the world. And the non-fundamental, the derivative aspects of reality, the genuinely features of the world, they exist or obtain in virtue of features of the fundamental aspects of reality. So if we're going to understand this approach, then what you need is some kind of notion of in virtue of to connect the fundamental stuff with the non-fundamental stuff. This is the sort of thing that's supposed to be expressed by the special philosopher's notion or metaphysician's notion of in virtue of, the one that I used in characterizing the view. So I'll say a few things about this. And I'm going to primarily just draw on Kit Fine's view about this kind of stuff because it's the most explicit, I think. So we've got kind of a list of parad supposedly paradigmatic examples down at the bottom corner of side two of the handout. The ball's red and round in virtue of being red and being round. It's red or blue in virtue of being red. It's coloured in virtue of being red, so on and so forth. Then we've got things like a singleton in exists in virtue of its member existing. A set of A, B and C is finite or has cardinality three in virtue of having exactly those things, those three things, its members. So thought is hopefully there's some kind of commonality amongst these these uses of in virtue of and they're kind of getting us in the right direction of the thing that we're interested in. And then Fine goes on to say a few more things about it by way of characterization. Nothing close to any kind of reductive analysis, but something to get us the feel for what what relation he's supposed to be thinking about. So he tells us that this relationship of ground, the thing expressed by in virtue of, in this special metaphysician sense, is supposed to be a relation of constitutive determination. The ground is supposed to constitute and determine the grounded. In some sense, what it is for the ball to be red and round is for it to be, or is determined by its being red and its being round. It's constituted by its being red and its being round. And the notion of determination that's meant to be in play here is supposed not to be a causal or a conceptual form of determination. It's supposed to be a metaphysical notion, whatever that is, a relate, something connecting aspects of the world. Another thing that Fine tells us is that there's an intimate connection between ground and a certain kind of explanation. So when A grounds C, we can use A, or A provides a especially strict or satisfying account of C. Grounds explain grounded in a particularly strict sense, he says. So there's a little quote from him here, which is kind of helpful, the kind of thing he's got in mind. So he says, statements of metaphysical ground are the strictest form of in virtue of play. 
There is and could be no stricter account of that in virtue of which the explanandum holds, the ground, that is. We have as strict an account of the explanandum as we might hope to have. If there's a gap between the grounds and what is grounded, then it's not an explanatory gap. So when A grounds C, A is supposed to explain C in this particularly strict and intimate sense. So we can say a few more things about ground if we start regimenting it slightly. And I'll just follow fine here. I like his kind of preferred regimentation is mine. Think of ground as expressed by a sentence operator. So it's got two argument positions. Sentences go in each argument position. And on one side of it, the left-hand side, side the grounds, it can take arbitrarily many sentences. But we'll just focus on the case where one, we have one sentence on either side. This is the thing expressed by A less than C, A out of C. The thought is that the arrow points towards the ground. Uh, nearest English equivalent is going to be something like C because A, uh, where we're supposed to read because with this special constitutive non-causal non-causal sense. And I'll talk kind of fairly liberally about facts grounding each other and standing in virtue of relations to each other. So it's kind of grammatically convenient, but it's hopefully always going to be liminal in favour of this sentential formulation. And now with that, we can say that there's a connection between ground and strict conditionals. So if A grounds C, so fine claims, necessarily the material conditional A R of C holds. If A grounds C, then it's necessary that if it's the case that A, it's the case that C. And the notion of ground that I particularly want to be interested in is the thing that Fine calls strict full ground. So this is supposed to be, so here are the things that characterize it. It's strict in the sense that ground is supposed to take us to metaphysically prior levels of being. If A grounds C, then A determines C, but it isn't determined by C. So A is prior to C in that sense. So that's the strictness aspect. And the fullness aspect is supposed to think that if A grounds C, A really suffices to account for C. It suffices for C. Full ground is enough for the thing that's grounded. So it's that notion that I'm going to be focusing on. There are other kind of weak and partial notions, but I just set them to one side. Uh, and then there's kind of some supposed formal features of it listed there, though they're not going to play any role. It's supposed to be a reflexive, asymmetric, and transitive. Okay, so there's kind of a worry about this notion. Is it coherent? Is it well understood? Is it epistemically accessible? Is it instantiated? I kind of share these worries. Like on some days, I think, who knows what people are talking about when they're talking about ground. On other days, it seems perfectly coherent. So I just want to bracket that that kind of issue for argument's sake and assume that it's coherent and see what we can do. So, on to section three. With this notion of ground in place, we can characterize a notion of fundamentality. So the natural candidate is going to be ungroundedness that which isn't grounded by anything else. So it's ungrounded that A just in case A and nothing ground. It's ungrounded that C just in case C and nothing grounds C. So we should probably, in this little formula on the top right, we should add on a conjunct to make sure that C is the case. But is the ungrounded stuff is the stuff that isn't grounded by anything else. And then it's natural to identify the fundamental with the ungrounded. The derivative with the grounded. 
derivative is that which obtains in virtue of other things, and the fundamental is that in virtue of which everything else obtains. Okay, so if this is going, how we're going to think about it, we face kind of a prima facie problem, which is that microphysicalism and macrophysicalism, as I started out with, they were characterized, they're supposed to be theses about the fundamentality of objects and properties. And so they're going to be most naturally regimented using predicates applicable to objects and properties. But the notion that we've got to hand is an operator on sentences. So how are we going to recapture microphysicalism and macrophysicalism? And I think the my kind of preferred way to go in this in this setting is say, well, look, it's just the there's many different notions of fundamentality that we can think of applicable to objects. But there's many different varieties or precisifications of fundamentality that's applicable to objects. If we've got these ungrounded facts around, then objects and properties are going to be constituents of them, and being constituents of different types of ungrounded facts are different ways for objects to be fundamental. So, for example, maybe the masses and the locations and the colours of things are ungrounded. That's one sense in which those things are fundamental. Uh, but another sense is if their existence, their identity, their persistence is ungrounded. That would be another notion of fundamentality applicable to those things. And we might think of some of these notions of fundamentality or ungroundedness as more central than others because they're more closely connected with the notions of object and property than others. So facts about existence or identity or instantiation we might think of as more central to the notions of object and property. So if there are ungrounded facts about the existence, identity and instantiation of objects and properties, that seems like a particularly central sense in which those objects and properties can be fundamental. So that's what I'm going to be looking at. I'm going to be looking for just those kinds of facts. I'm going to be trying to look for what could ground facts about the existence, identity, persistence of ordinary objects and the instantiation of ordinary sorting properties. And obviously, I want to say that nothing grounds them. Well, it's not quite what I'll say, but it's in the vicinity. Okay, so onward, section four on the handout. So, what I said we were going to do was impose a proportionality constraint on ground and see what happens. So we need to know what proportionality means. And as I'm thinking about it, it's a notion that derives from Yab some of Yablo's work on causation. So here's what Yablo says. He says, cause is proportional to effect in the following sense. Cause incorporates enough information to account for the effect and no more. That's the idea. The cause incorporates enough information to account for its effects and no more, no irrelevancies. And then what he does with this is he uses it to distinguish between causal sufficiency, causal relevance, and cause. So the causally sufficient is that which suffices to account for the effect, but it may also incorporate unnecessary and irrelevant information. The causally relevant is information that is relevant to accounting for the effect or is required to account for the effect, but which may not suffice for doing so. And the cause is kind of the sweet spot between the two of these. Right? Incorporates enough information to account for effects and no more. 
And then he puts this to work uh, defending the mental from overdetermination by the physical. Thought goes something like this. Look, pick some mental phenomenon, find its physical realization. Does the physical realization cause whatever the mental causes? Not obviously, because the physical realization incorporates all sorts of information that the mental doesn't. All sorts of information about particular neural configuration, for instance, that mental characterizations emit. And that information might often and typically will be irrelevant to accounting for the effects, or what we think of as the effects of mental phenomena. And because the physical realizations incorporate all of this irrelevant and unnecessary information, they won't count as causes of whatever the mental counts as causes of. And because they're not causes, they can't causally exclude them. And so goes the thought. So I think this is quite a nice picture of causation. Uh, but I think this kind of central idea behind it of proportionality is one that we can apply fruitfully in various different ways. I think it's an important notion in the theory of explanation more generally, uh, but I think it's also an important notion for thinking about ground. So I've got this thesis on the handout, top left side three, that I call proportional ground. It's the thesis that ground is proportional to the grounded. Right, so if A ground C, then A is proportional to C. So here's two arguments for this thesis of proportional ground. So here's the first argument. So according to Fine, at least, ground doesn't satisfy the principle of weakening. So if A ground C, it doesn't follow that A and gamma for any arbitrary gamma is going to ground C. If A ground C, you can't just stick it together with anything else and still have a ground for C. Why not? Well, Fine's answer is that, well, here's what he says, because all of the grounds must be relevant to the conclusion. All of them must be relevant to the conclusion. So that's the kind of thought which is responsible for undermining weakening, which is supposed to be one of the key differences between ground and just straightforward consequent, logical consequence. We can kind of shoehorn that into an argument for proportionality. But this, look, if proportional ground fails, then either the ground contains irrelevant information that's not required to account for the effect, or the ground fails to be sufficient to account for the effect. So the first scenario is ruled out, incorporating irrelevant information by the fact that ground is meant to fail to satisfy weakening. Ground is not supposed to contain irrelevant information. And the second case is ruled out because by hypothesis we're looking at full ground. We're looking at that notion of ground which is sufficient to account for the effect. So if neither of the two ways that proportional ground can fail is permitted, then it's got to hold. So we've got an argument from the reason why weakening is supposed to fail for proportional ground. Here's a second argument for it. This kind of exploits the connection between ground and these particularly intimate and strict forms of explanation. So the thought in the background is the best explanations are going to be proportional explanations. Here's the kind of justification for that. So other things being equal, less informative explanations are going to be better than more informative explanations. Why is that? It's because a less informative explanation is going to be applicable across a wider range of phenomena. It's going to bring a wider range of phenomena under a single heading. In doing so, 
It's going to expose more systematicities and regularities and patterns in the world, which is part of the point of explanation. However, things cease to be equal when the explanation becomes too weak. When it becomes too weak, the explanation applies across too wide a range of circumstances. It brings genuinely disunified phenomena under a single heading. And in doing that, it fails to account for at least some of them. So putting these two thoughts together, other things being equal, at least the best explanations are going to tend to be proportional explanations. They're going to be minimally informative explanations that are sufficiently informative to account for what we're trying to explain. The best explanations are going to be proportional. So given that ground is supposed to license this particularly strict and intimate form of explanation, it's very natural to think that those explanations should be proportional, given this kind of argument. But if the explanations licensed by ground are going to be proportional explanations, then ground itself would best be proportional. Because look, if A grounds C, then A explains C in this especially strong sense. And if A explains C in this especially strong sense, then A is proportional to C. So if A grounds C, A is proportional to C. So proportional ground patterns. And one kind of slightly different kind of consideration that I'm not, that I don't think I can fully articulate is that, look, if ground really is supposed to be some kind of constitution, if the ground is supposed to, in some sense, constitute the grounded, it had better not incorporate loads of unnecessary and irrelevant information. Because how could it then constitute or make up the grounded thing if it incorporates all sorts of information that's irrelevant to the thing that it's supposed to constitute? So that's the kind of setting that I want to be thinking about. That's the notion of ground I want to be working with. And that's, broadly speaking, the notion of proportionality that I'm going to be talking about. So what I'll do now is I'll look at kind of the general form and the strategy of the argument. And I'll start by working with this notion of proportionality, keeping it to a reasonably intuitive level, not saying anything overly precise about how to articulate it. And then hopefully then at the end, I'll say something a bit more precise about how to understand this notion of proportionality and how to be able to apply it in a way that justifies the conclusions of these arguments. So here's the thought, what we're going to do is we're going to pick a fact about an ordinary object and we're going to see what we can find to ground that fact. And if we're going to be microphysicalists, the ground that we find for it, it better be something in the microphysics. But I'm going to argue that there aren't any acceptable grounds like that using this proportionality constraint. Okay, so I suppose that Tibbles is the one and only cat that sat on the mat. And Tibbles is going to be constituted by some specific collection or plurality of particles that I've just called TT, like TT for plural terms. And these particles, they're going to be in some specific microphysical configuration M1. We're supposed to think of M1 as the actual distribution of microphysical properties and relations across these particles. And there are obviously lots of other possible ones they could be in. So here's the question. What grounds the fact that there is a cat on the mat? First proposal is the fact that those particular particles, the ones that actually constitute tibbles, are in the configuration that they're actually in. Does the fact that they're in that configuration ground the fact that there's a cat on the mat? 
not according to proportional ground, because the fact that those particular particles are in that particular configuration incorporates much more information than is required. The particular particles involved are completely irrelevant to whether or not there's a cat on the mat. Many other different collections of particles would have done just as well in their place. Variation in respect of which particles are on the mat is not variation that's relevant to whether there's a cat on the mat. So we don't have a proportional ground there. Second suggestion, okay, let's get rid of the particular particles. There are some particles on the mat in that particular configuration. Does that ground there being a cat on the mat? Again, no, it incorporates more information than is required. The particular microphysical configuration that they're in is more than is required. That incorporates all sorts of information that's not relevant to whether there's a cat on the mat. Many different microphysical configurations, many different distributions of microphysical properties and relations across particles would have done equally well in their place. Variation, at least within a certain range in respect of the microphysical configuration, is not variation that's relevant to whether or not there's a cat on the mat. That's the thought. Okay, so third option. Let's try factoring out the irrelevancies both involved in the particular particles and the particular configuration. And the proposal is that what is it that grounds there being a cat on the mat? It's that there are some particles in this configuration or that configuration or the other configuration and we'll just go on and list them all. So is this a ground for there being a cat on the map? Well, I think it's going to satisfy the proportionality constraint, or plausibly at least, because if we pick our disjuncts carefully enough, we'll get something which is necessarily equivalent to there being a cat on the map. But we still don't have a ground, because what have we got? We've got something which is infinitely disjunctive, and ground is supposed to license explanations. But infinite disjunctions do not provide good explanations. An infinite disjunction without any account of what all the disjuncts have got in common does not provide a good explanation for a phenomenon. So we don't have a ground yet. Next option. Let's try and avoid disjunctions, but do the same kind of thing. It's a different strategy for factoring out both kinds of irrelevancy than the particular particles and the particular configuration. So what we're going to do is we're going to start out with the notion of a catwise configuration or a catwise way of being configured, being configured. So we're supposed to think of this as a property of properties or a property of ways of being microphysically configured. And it's a property of exactly those configurations which are such that particles in the configuration compose a cat. So the putative ground is that there are some things and some property, the things instantiate the property, and the property is a catwise property. So again, it looks like we'll be able to satisfy the proportionality constraint because we'll end up with something necessarily equivalent to there being a cat on the map. But do we yet have a ground? And in particular, do we have a ground here which is going to be acceptable to the microphysical? So I think the answer is no. So one question to ask is how should we think about this property of properties of being a catwise property or a catwise way of being configured? One option is that it's just it's analyzable. We can effectively just replace it with the gloss that I gave you. It's the property of being a configuration such that things in that configuration compose a cat. So if we do that, 
then what we get is a trivial and uninformative ground. It's uninformative in the same sense that saying that smoking causes cancer because smoking instantiates the property of being such that you cause cancer. Property of properties that are such that you cause cancer. It's no kind of explanation at all. It's trivial, it's boring, it's uninformative. This is supposed to be a good explanation that we're getting out of ground. So we can set that to one side. So in that case, we can't think of this as an analyzable property of properties. We can't just replace it with the gloss that I gave you. It's supposed to be some kind of primitive property of ways of being microphysically configured. So I think we're pretty close to something in the vicinity of macrophysical, isn't it? So one question to ask is, is this property of properties, is its instantiation by a particular property grounded in something else? If not, then we've got ungrounded facts about the instantiation of this property of properties by ways of being configured. In other words, we've got an ungrounded distinction between ways of being, ways of microphysically configuring pluralities of particles. But this ungrounded distinction between these ways of being microphysically configured, it's really just kind of transposing our ordinary sort of concepts up from properties of individuals to properties of properties, playing essentially the same role. It's marking essentially the same distinction between properties of properties as we wanted the ordinary sort of cat to mark. In the same kind of line, this kind of this distinction between ways of being microphysically configured is not a distinction that has any role to play in microphysics. The only reason for recognizing this distinction between ways of being configured is thinking about our ordinary sort of concepts and the things that fall under them. So if this is an ungrounded distinction amongst ways of being configured, then this is a fundamental distinction corresponding to an aspect of our ordinary conceptual scheme. Which aspect? One from the ordinary sort of property cat. So it's pretty much a version of macrophysicalism. It's certainly unacceptable to the microphysicalist. So the microphysicalist is presumably going to have to say that this distinction between properties is grounded in some way. What's the answer going to be? I, I just no idea. Until kind of the details are given, it looks like wishful thinking on behalf of microphysicalists. So we have found a ground, but it's not one which is acceptable to microphysicalists. So now let's look at one final option. And now we're going to think of this notion of catwise not as a property of ways of being microphysically configured, but a property of pluralities of particles. So it's not a property of complex properties, it's a property of pluralities of individuals, pluralities of particles. And it's the property we can gloss as being such that you compose a cat. Proposal, the existence there being a cat on the map is grounded in there being some particles that are configured in this catwise way. Okay, so again, we'll probably satisfy the proportionality constraint because we'll end up with something which is necessarily equivalent to there being a cat on the mat. But is it going to be acceptable to the microphysicalist? Well, we can just replay exactly the same debate as we've been through. If it's analyzable, so we can just replace it with the gloss that I gave, we're going to end up with something which is trivial and uninformative. If it's primitive and ungrounded, then we've got an ungrounded distinction between pluralities of particles which is essentially just the one marked by our ordinary sort of concepts.
and ground the distinction between pluralities of particles according as to whether or not the composer counts. If it is grounded, then we want to know the details why. It's not clear what the details will be. And look, we can use one kind of proposal you might have here is what grounds the fact that these properties are catwise configured, these particles are catwise configured. Well, it's the particular microphysical configuration that they're in. But look, we can use just the same style of proportionality arguments again to rule out those kinds of proposals. So it's not clear how the microphysicalist is going to go. So again, we've got a potential ground, but it's not one that's acceptable to the microphysicalist. And moreover, once we've got things like these ungrounded distinctions between pluralities of particles or ungrounded distinctions between ways of configuring pluralities of particles that just correspond to our ordinary sortal concepts, you kind of start thinking, why not just have it as an ungrounded fact that there's a cat on the map? It's really not that much different in kind. Okay, so that's the style of argument that I'm thinking about. And I think what it does is it, it may not deliver ungrounded facts corresponding exactly to the instantiation of ordinary sortals. But what it does force is fundamental distinctions either between properties or between pluralities of particles. The only reason for recognizing them is our ordinary sortal concepts. So we're left at the kind of view that our ordinary sortal concepts are latching onto fundamental aspects of reality, the kind of view that I said I was interested in. So towards the very end of the handout, there's a bunch of kind of variations on this theme. Uh, I think we can run very similar analogous arguments for the persistence of ordinary individuals. What grounds the fact that the cat on the mat on Tuesday is identical to the cat on the mat on, Tuesday, on Wednesday? This time, the argument's going to play out thinking in terms of relations between pluralities of particles in exactly the same terms as before. I think we can run very similar arguments for what grounds the fact that it tibbles that particular cat that's on the mat rather than any other. It's not obvious what the answer is going to be from a microphysicalist perspective. And these proportionality arguments are going to rule out many of the candidate answers. And we can do what grounds the fact that Tibbles is a cat. Nothing kind of microphysicalistically acceptable comes to mind, and the same kinds of arguments can all be run again against all the candidates. So if this style of argument is a good one, then what we're going to end up with is kind of fundamental facts corresponding not just to the instantiation of ordinary sortal properties, but to facts about which macroscopic individuals there are in the world and the persistence of those individuals. In fact, ungrounded, hexaeotistic, macroscopic facts. So I think that's it. I like that. Yeah. So I'm not going to I'm not going to go through those arguments in detail. What I want to do instead is to ask, can we be a bit more precise about this notion of proportionality? Can we say some things about how how to characterize it a bit more precisely? which are going to allow us to apply it in these arguments and get out the results that I'd like to get out. So the discussion on the handout, I think, is actually unsatisfying in quite a large number of ways. So I'm not going to talk through that. There are big chunks of it I'll probably delete in retrospect. So what I'll do is I'll just say something about what kind of my preferred approach is at the moment on the basis of thinking about this. So if you look in the literature, you can find 
two kinds of approach to proportionality, two ways of trying to make the notion a bit more precise. One of them due to Yablo in his original work on the topic, and another slightly more recently by Peter Menzies and Christian List, who do something that looks quite different to the first pass, but explicitly present themselves as trying to capture some of Yablo's ideas. So I think Yablo's approach is unsatisfactory for kind of reasons that are on the handout that I won't go into. And the Menzies and List approach is kind of overly dependent on things that it shouldn't be dependent on. But there's a kind of common idea between the two of them. And the idea is to try and capture proportionality by thinking about uh, variation across counterfactual circumstances. And the rough idea is something like this. If, well look, for A to be proportional for C, is for A to incorporate enough information to account for C and no more. So let's think across a range of counterfactual circumstances in which it's the case that A. There's no variation in respect to A. Well, since A is supposed to suffice to account for C, C should also be present in all of those circumstances. Now there might be some funny business going on, there might be things interfering to prevent a sufficing for C in all those circumstances or defeating the connection between A and C and all sorts of funny business. But that shouldn't be the standard case. It's like, by and large, if A suffices for C, then nearby counterfactual circumstances in which A, it should also be the case with C. Similarly, if A is required to account for C, yeah, if nothing in A is irrelevant to C, if A is required to account for C, then nearby counterfactual circumstances in which it's not the case that A shouldn't be circumstances in which it's the case that C. If A is required to account for C, then taking it out of the actual circumstances should also remove C from those circumstances. So we can consider counterfactual scenarios in which A is removed and check to see whether C is removed. And again, there might be all sorts of funny business going on. There might be, when we remove A from the actual circumstances, something else might arrive to make it the case that C. So the test is going to fail. But this kind of funny business, it shouldn't be the norm. So we can put these two kinds of ideas together and get what we can think of as a test for proportionality. The test is going to be, so there are these two counterfactual conditionals on the handout. P1 and is there a pen? There are these two counterfactuals on there, so I've called P1 and P2. So I thought is the two of those are going to provide our test for proportionality. A is proportional to C according to the test, only if both of those counterfactual conditionals hold. And because what we're going to be checking is for things that are actually the case, we're going to need to evaluate this in a slightly non-standard way. Because if A and C are actually the case, you don't want it to turn out trivially true. We're going to have to consider other nearby counterfactual circumstances in which it's also the case that A, and check to see whether it's the case that C. And the thought goes something like this. If A and C pass the test, then that's a good indicator of proportionality. It's not a flawless indicator of proportionality, because there might be some funny business going on to interfere with the operation of the test. But if something passes the test and then somebody wants to come along and say that, well, proportionality doesn't really hold, 
The onus is on them to point to the feature of the situation which is responsible for that. The onus is on them to say why it passes the test even though proportionality isn't present. So that's the kind of notion that I want to be thinking. And then in section 7, just very quickly, we can apply this test to all of the cases that we ran through initially and we can get out the results that we wanted. So is it the case that these particular particles being in this particular configuration are proportional to there being a cat on the mat? Well, the first conditional holds nearby counterfactual circumstances in which those particular particles are in that particular configuration, but also circumstances in which there's a cat on the mat. So they suffice to account for there being a cat on the mat. Does the second conditional hold? No, it doesn't. Nearby counterfactual circumstances in which it's not the case that those particles are in that particular configuration. Some of those circumstances are ones in which there is a cat on the mat because some other particles are in some slightly different configuration. So it's not required to account for C, and so it's not proportional. Similarly, we can do it with a big disjunctive thing. Does there being some particles in this configuration or that configuration or the other configuration, does that ground there being a cat on the mat? Well, the test says it's proportional, just like we initially said. The first one holds, we've got necessary because we've got necessary equivalence, and the second one holds as well for the same reason. If there aren't any particles in any of these particular configurations, all the candidates for all the cat constituting configurations, then there isn't a cat on the back either. So cats have to be constituted by something. So we get the result out that I was after. Okay, so I think that's basically everything that I wanted to say. Thank you. Thank you.